This is a HeadGum Podcast. Good One is sponsored by Spotify. Hey, welcome to the third season of Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. In case this is your first episode, I'll explain a little bit about what's going to happen. Each episode, a comedian, comedy writer, or director picks a joke, a bit, a sketch, or a scene from their career to play and discuss how and why it came together. To kick off the third season, we have Kid Gorgeous himself, Mr. John Mulaney. John has been a dream guest for me ever since I started the podcast. He is one of the best and most versatile joke writers of this generation, both on SNL and shows he's written for, as well as his stand-up. With his third hour special, Kid Gorgeous at Radio City, premiering on Netflix, we sat down to discuss the one joke early in his career that changed everything for him. As he'll explain, working on this joke from his debut album, The Top Part, taught him how to write jokes in a style that he still does to this day. Later in the interview, we discuss Oh Hello on Broadway, the show he did with Nick Kroll, and how it resulted in a second major breakthrough for his stand-up. By the end of the interview, you'll get a sense of how John Mulaney went from promising comedy wonderkin to the grizzled joke machine he is today. So here's a young John Mulaney joking about $100 million, followed by an older John Mulaney talking about writing that joke when he was young. I love movies, though. I'm kind of... It, it's funny to me over the summer when these big, like, blockbuster action movies come out, you know? And you'll read about one movie, one, one of these movies, and it'll say that it costs something like $100 million. Because whenever I read that, I think, like, yeah, uh, you didn't need to make a movie with that money. I would have bought a ticket just to see $100 million. <laughs> Like, I, I am at a point in my life where I would wait on a line just to look at that much cash. Like, you could just stack it up in a motel room and line us up down the hall. You put some guy out front in a straw hat that's like, it is $8 to see the $100 million, or $10 to have your money added to the $100 million. Ooh. Very luxurious. But think about it. That would be entertaining, you know? You'd go into this room, and there would just be, like, stacks of $100 bills and jewelry and, like, gold coins spilling out of a pirate chest. Because pirates never bring a big enough chest. In pictures, their gold coins are always overflowing. And they can't get the lid closed. Why is that? I think that maybe with the eye patches, they have poor depth perception. I am here with the man behind that joke, Mr. John Mulaney. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What's it like hearing that joke now? I was thinking the whole time, speed it up, John. <laughs> speed it up. That was some slow delivery. <laughs> I really like that joke, but uh, wow, that was it, the, the pacing. I think I've paced it up since then. The other thing I noticed is 
in the uh, some of the early parts of the joke setting it up, I sound exactly like Berbiglia. Yeah. Uh, like Mike Berbiglia, because I've been touring with him so much, you know, from like 2005 to 2007. And then this was recorded, I think, a couple days after the election of 08. And the it's I, just hearing it now, I was like, oh, my God, I'm just doing Berbiglia <laughs> completely. Yeah. So I think I've heard you talk about how the joke eventually went through a pretty uh, drastic change. But can you tell me what, what was the first spark of something that you're like, oh, I want to write a joke about this? You know, when did you first first think of it? When did I first think of it? Well, it, it's interesting because I the joke when I started it was like uh, phrased much more conceptually. Yeah. Like, you know how movies cost a hundred million? What if you could see the money? And it was, it, I know it seems like a small difference, but it was like, here's a premise. <laughs> and that was very, um, that, that worked in some rooms, the patience of like, uh, hey, I have a premise to give you. And people would go, oh, that's great. And they'd snap <laughs> instead of clapping or whatever. That type of joke setup was, seemed like very indicative of when I started doing stand-up. And then in like 2000, you think like 2000? Yeah, I started in 2003 um, while I was still in college. I did open mics uh, here in New York for the summer in between my junior and senior year. And then I moved back to New York immediately after graduation. I would do a lot of like these great, uh, what they called alternative rooms, <laughs> like Rafifi. And uh, the audience just had a patience. They allowed a 24-year-old to just like indulge sort of premises laid mm -hmm. out there. What they want to be like you're having a conversation opposed to like, I'm here, Mr. Showbiz, time to do my material for you. Well, there was that too. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. If you came on looking like you'd practice, uh, <laughs> that was no good at all. It had to be clunkily done in order to seem real. But uh, with that, it was like, I took that joke and I was doing it at the Stress Factory in uh, New Jersey, um, mm -hmm. which is a comedy club club where people have paid and there's a you know cover charge and a two drink minimum and everything. And I did a set, 20 minute set and uh, Ross Bennett was the headliner and I just ate it. Like I just ate it the whole time. I bombed so terribly, just silence. And it, I, would, I didn't yet enjoy bombing. So like it was really just terrible, like back sweating terrible. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, Ross Bennett gave me Great advice that I will always be thankful for. He said, you know, he said, you're very funny, but these people have no time for your cleverness. Just get to the point. And it's a tiny change, and it is probably boring to, to hear about this minutia, but just phrasing it as getting back to why I first thought of it was like, why, why do people, uh, aren't people just impressed by the feat of getting <laughs> that much money together? Yeah. Which is where it came from. Where, the way I used to deliver it was like, what if instead of a movie, you saw the money? It's a small difference, but I just like getting in touch with the, the little bit of exasperation I had. Yeah. Coming from like when a big movie would get a bad review, it's like, aren't you just impressed that they did it? And they made a fake spaceship and stuff and everyone had helmets on. Like They figured out what to do with $100 million. Yeah, they got the money first <laughs> off. And then they all had costumes like... That that's hard, and and any part of that would be impressive, especially just the pile of money. So, do you remember the the first time you changed it, and then the audience reaction? Yes, the next night uh, at the Stress Factory <laughs> sure. in New Jersey, it was just kind of as you heard it, but probably more nervous um, because I had just bombed horribly the night before, and uh, it was just the like mild exasperation of 
Like, aren't people impressed by the amount of money they got together? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine getting $100 million together? Just laying that groundwork so people know what I mean, and then I can get into, like, a, a carnival barker and a pirate gesture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the second half is still quote-unquote clever, but at least they're like, this is why we're here. I have this thing. Yeah, this is why we're here is a big thing to learn yeah. for jokes because you can have great tags to jokes. They can finish strong. They can have, like, little bits of texture and cleverness in them, but, like, if people don't know what you're talking about, it, it, you're just done. By first prioritizing the impetus that you felt that made you have these sort of flights of fancy, how do you think it? How do you think the audience perceives the joke differently? I think maybe they perceive it as, for better or worse, uh, this gentleman is uh, super worked up about this, so we will listen. Uh, at this moment in this club, this is very important to this <laughs> young man, <laughs> and he seems to be very exasperated about it, so I'll listen. Yeah. You know? Like if someone's screaming... Uh, on the street, like you just, you pay attention because you're like, what is he so worked up about? And it's that, you know, uh, someone tied up a bike in front of his house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's less about, oh, this is a comedian. This is a person trying to show me how clever he is. And this is like, let's. this is a person who cares about things regardless of how. Yeah, it's, it's exasperation about uh, nonsense. Yeah. yeah. Can you give an example from a, a more recent bit of like, this very much applied? Um, that this lesson applied to, I'd say all of them, uh, (laughs) I'd say everything I'd done since then, I thought if you don't care or if you don't seem like you care, why should they care? You know, you're the one with the microphone for some reason and they're sitting there in chairs listening to you for some reason. So you better act like you care about this. And, uh, I guess in writing, uh, I started to pick things that I had more strong, strong takes on as stupid or random as they may be. So at, at this point in your career, how are you literally writing? How A joke like this, though you changed it when it first started, how was it pen to paper? Is it a thing where you went up with this sort of idea that you want to do a character pitching the idea of seeing? No, it would be much more, uh, it would, it, I was much more like disciplined in terms of, I'd think of an idea, then I'd write it out. I'd have the wording exactly how I wanted it before I put it on stage. I would not sort of, figure anything out on stage because I was not comfortable enough to do that. And only in like long, long uh, bouts of touring do I get back into that mode where it's not like I'm writing on stage. I've thought of a premise and I may even have grouped some words together, but like I'm willing also to toss stuff in and see if that mm-hmm. gets like with the, you know, our dads are a mystery dust. Toss that in. They laugh at that. Okay, well, then I'll go into more dad stuff on the fly sure. and just see if you like that. Oh, you like that one? Okay, well, then there's one more. <laughs> it's not a formed joke, but we're doing okay. I'll yeah. toss that in. And uh, that's that's kind of the that's the writing process when you're doing stand-up, you know, twice a night for like a year. I know uh, you hate receiving compliments, so I'm going to phrase this next question with a compliment from you, so uh, for you, I guess. So I, I asked former guest and friend of yours, Pete Holmes, if you remembered you coming up with this joke. And uh, he said he did not, but he remembered the first time he heard it is $8 to see the $100 million or to have, or $10 to have your money added to it. And uh, as he said, he experienced, as he put it, the only true comedy compliment, pure jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet. Thank you, Pete. Do you remember thinking of that, the second tier of $10 to add your money to the $100 million? I don't recall uh, thinking of... Uh that tag specifically, but like, 
I recall getting more comfortable with the anachronistic stuff I liked, such as that type of voice, mm-hmm. which then I uh, milked for a decade. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, indulging it longer, you know, being like, I- I'm, I'm at Penguin's uh, Comedy Club in Cedar Rapids, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I feel good doing these characters that make me laugh. And uh, so it was more like I'm, I'm more comfortable playing a carnival barker for a few minutes in front of a paid audience. You know, it's a joke that you could have hypothetically said in your voice. You know, you could have just kept on going with the joke as John Mulaney saying it. But, you know, you you did the act out as, as you said, a little scene where you're doing a carnival barker voice. And I feel like that type of joke construction is uh, a signature of yours, <laughs> a thing you go to. It might have just become my voice after yeah. a while, yeah. But I mean, to, to specifically do a scene, to the idea that your act out is you set up a premise, you have some jokes at it, and then you're like, now we're going to go to that moment. The hyper-literal act out. Yes. Yeah. And why is that a thing that you, I feel like you go back to successfully and often? People would ask after shows, uh, and I think they do this with a lot of comics, of like, is that true? Or that didn't happen, did it? And I wanted to make it like clear these things happened. And you're also aware on stage of how much time you have between mm-hmm. laughs. And so, like, people always want to go for brevity. But with certain stories, um, my philosophy is say every single thing they said and then your reaction and everything that happened in real time because that's why it was <laughs> funny when it happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, it the, the, like, specificity of it, even mm-hmm. if it's, you know, something that no one relates to, Everyone uh, can. Everyone respects specificity for some reason. Rewatching also your doc, the documentary now episodes that you helped write, it also felt a little. It feels a bit Spalding Gray esque at times to have these little scenes in your voice. Yeah, I, I took that from Spalding Gray. <laughs> I uh, I really uh, Spalding Gray, the monologist, is a huge influence on me, and I absolutely hook, line, and sinker took it. Uh, uh, was in. I mean. There's jokes that are rhythmically like based on, you know, runs that he had that I I would listen to and go, I want a joke that moves that fast. Mm -hmm. Um, He has a uh, monologue called, um, forgive me, it's it's Slippery Slope or It's a Slippery Slope. Uh, But anyway, he talks about how he's separating from his girlfriend and uh, learning to ski at the same time. And he has a long monologue about skiing down this mountain called Ajax. And it has this rhythm of like an up and down and around and up and down and around. And I uh, have this joke on that same album, the top part, about uh, when I realized I was accidentally chasing a woman down a subway tunnel. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact same thing. Uh, and same thing like here where you, until maybe now, you didn't realize you were straight up ripping up Propiglia, especially in the beginning. Oh, yeah. And then a little bit of Hedberg, too. Something, uh, there's some uh, wording, I can't uh, uh, put my finger on it, in that joke you just played where... I'm like, oh, that's Hedberg. And Berbiglia toured with Hedberg. And I remember Berbiglia saying, you know, sometimes he would have a little bit of Hedberg in his mm-hmm. voice if he followed him on stage. And then I was always opening for Mike. So I absorbed Mike and maybe, a, you know, a tiny, like in, if we 23 didn't meet the joke, yeah. there'd be like, you know, 60% Berbiglia, <laughs> 10% Hedberg. Um, and then from Hedberg, you know, Five percent Stephen Wright, and then the rest I'm uh, Irish and German. (laughs) Um, We'll be back with more John Mulaney after this word from our sponsor. 
you know that every single episode of Good One is now on Spotify? Yes, it's true. I wouldn't lie to you. At least not about whether or not every single episode of Good One is now on Spotify. The very same app that has millions of songs now has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows <coughs> Good one. and discover new ones. Just not too many. I want to make sure you're still able to listen to every single episode of Good One three times in a row, back to back to back. To subscribe to our show, search for Good One, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify. They're streaming right now. And now. And now. Uh, we are back with John Mullaney. Hey! <laughs> There's that old-timey radio voice. Yeah, the persona. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to get back to the, the $1 million, $100 million joke, but I want to talk a little bit about Oh Hello, because I believe it has the sort of most total good jokes of anything at least I've experienced. Oh, thank you. That's it very is, nice of you to say. There was, there's one specific joke. That the first time I remember specifically hearing it, and I was weirdly proud of you. Uh huh. <laughs> I remember being like, he did it, uh, which is the OJ joke. Uh huh. <laughs> the 1990s. Mad about you. Pesto sauce. OJ Simpson breaks his 45 year no killing streak. <laughs> O.J. Simpson kills those two people so hard, they stop making the Ford Bronco. Can you imagine doing something so fucked up there's no more Toyota Camry? So in a world where the O.J. trial happened 20 years ago, and a thing that you've been obsessed with, I believe, constantly since then. Yes, during... uh, and since that your your family would talk about it at the dinner table. Yes, we'd talk about OJ every night. Uh, we sometimes still talk about OJ. Uh, <laughs> really? Just, we just go through the trial and what 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 could have been done. And and as as a person who, in that situation, you know how much comedy has been made of it. And then here you are. You found something so a different angle. It's so funny, and the joke is essentially punchline that is a setup to the next punchline, which is set up to the next punchline uh can you tell me about coming up with it did you have this sort of each beat come naturally what was it like telling it every night um the the uh origin of that joke was um actually thinking about the current president uh the the game show host guy that became president by (laughs) by accident um i i was like i was like i think if we'd given him an emmy uh, none of this would have happened. And then I was thinking about how the people that I actually watch on TV and uh, actually fill our screens most of the day and that we watch most of the time are not the people that win Emmy Awards. You know, people who win Emmy Awards are on shows that make 13 excellent episodes every year, but they're on television for, at most, you know, 13 hours. And mm-hmm. sometimes they're not even in every episode. So they're, they can be on television for one hour a year and they win an Emmy, but we never gave Emmys to anyone from the OJ trial. And they entertained us for like two years. I mean, they got no award and it really is, it's, there should be an Emmy award for that given to, to OJ. And I'm not, not for what he, what he did was wrong. <laughs> Look, let's not, I don't want to, I don't want to be judgmental, but I think what he did was wrong. And, uh, but we then consumed it. 
uh, as media. And there's no award for it. We give awards to people that write about it. Like, they were all in the courtroom doing it. It was hilarious. Mm -hmm. Just everyone got up at the OJ trial, and they were like, you think that guy was weird? Let me take the stand. Uh, Like, uh, oh, oh, oh. uh, (laughs) Remember remember that friend of OJ's who was, like, just from the stand, he was like, OJ, tell the truth. Uh, Like, that happened, and then Cato got up and was making jokes, and, uh, and, and everyone just, like, everyone was interesting. It was the best ensemble ever put together. Now, this is also, uh, uh, since my obsession has been forever, but now there's been that excellent uh, documentary and mm-hmm. the um, FX series about it. So it has been celebrated uh, to, for what it was. Properly to some degree, yeah. But, uh, I mean, it was like, it was just a murderer's row of, it, it was like the 92 bulls of weird people. And uh, the the like OJ had five lawyers. The least interesting of them was was Robert Kardashian, <laughs> who spawned the Kardashians. So the least interesting person at the OJ trial begat the Kardashians. I mean, Effley Bailey, Dershowitz, uh, Barry Sheck, uh, um, Robert Shapiro, of course, uh, and his his and his lovely wife Linnell Shapiro. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, the guy that never did nothing what all happened to spawn the, the next most interesting thing that everyone watches. Yeah. So actually, I think then the sort of... So I thought he deserved an Emmy. Sure. And I, and I believe that okay. in my bones. So then the joke came from like, let's acknowledge just how big of a deal uh, all of this was. And, uh, and, and he, they stopped making the Bronco. <laughs> Because he was in a Bronco. It's yeah. crazy. It'd be and, like if you kidnapped, if you like kidnapped mall Santas and, and you know, uh, violated them in a, you know, a Toyota Camry. And then they'd be like the Santa Camry molester. And they'd be like, oh, we got to get rid of the Camry. <laughs> Let's focus on the Corolla. <laughs> were, there, were there versions where you ex- expound upon it further i I was talking to my friend dan levy the very funny comedian and he was like you should do it special on oj just to do an hour and i was like (laughs) yes i will i will do that and then uh the show and the documentary came out and i thought oh i I guess it's you know i guess it's been taken from (laughs) me um the ultimate crime (laughs) and uh but yeah no i could i could to a degree that would bore everyone to tears talk about the oj trial everything then was uh um Everything then was like just interesting as hell. Um, it was my childhood felt like Clarence Thomas hearings, uh, Tanya Harding, OJ, and then Whitewater Monica Lewinsky. Like I think that lasted probably three years. It felt like it lasted yeah. my whole childhood. It is. I feel like there aren't as many famous trials. I feel like the the nineties was. Filled with famous trials, I guess, because we have reality television. We don't. Yeah, but those also were very famous people. Menendez was before that. Yeah, yeah. That uh, um, and then um, I, I never thought the Phil Spector trial got the attention it deserved. <laughs> nor did he get an Emmy. He has a lot of Grammys, you know, for his work in music. But he wore that uh, huge wig that one day, and like how that doesn't win an Emmy for comedy, I don't know. Like, is that is is, is a show written? 
And I am a comedy writer. Sure. But has any one of us ever written anything as funny as when Phil Spector, on trial for murder, came in in a huge Afro wig, which he said was a, his tribute to Jimi Hendrix? Uh, no. As a, as a comedy journalist, Objectively I not, speaking, I have not seen anything. I have f- not seen anyone uh, pull something off like that. What did you learn from playing George that whole run that you then brought to this last stand-up tour? Um, I got comfortable by doing eight shows a week uh, for that many months um, with uh, being angry on stage and having people not like the mm-hmm. character. And by not like, I mean it was a comedy and they knew that I was not actually a Robert Durstian <laughs> wife-murdering person. But just, you know, uh, having like raw, unlikable moments uh, and just staring the audience down with it. Uh, doing that eight shows a week was totally invaluable because then I was like, I-, I-, I will try anything I'm used to. It's different than bombing. It's more like I am used to a look on your face of like, I trusted you and you've upset me. The the things, you know, especially I was uh, watching Kid, Kid Gorgeous and the thing that sort of jumped, the two things that jumped out at me, um, previously you described playing George, you're the most free you've ever been on stage. Uh-huh. And the other thing, which is, I believe another comedian pointed this out, which is it captures both of your essences, which is Nick is a baby and uh, you're an asshole. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. And I was like, Oh, there he is. That sort of you—you you felt the most th- this version of you on stage. That it felt like George was a cocoon that you were able to then bust out of to be your more mean self, part of yourself on stage. Does that make sense? Like you were, yes. It, it, even in volume, I just I got comfortable yelling. Yeah, uh, on stage. Do uh, you do you feel? I don't want to put like. If you could put maybe a number on it or sort of describe it, how much more of yourself to the were you giving to the audience in Kid, Kid Gorgeous compared to sort of where you started out in the top part? Like how much more of yourself do you feel like you were or are now? Oh, there's moments in that album, uh, the top part, that I would say I was fully being myself. And there's moments where um, I I don't think I was consciously – holding back i just didn't have the comfort to keep going and keep you know digging and get to the point where you're like i'm kind of a bad person but i think this you know yeah um it wasn't a like uh, you know in order to okay this is the first album so it's got to be family friendly uh it was just uh just sort of you know a process of like getting more comfortable on stage and also like getting older and you care less what people think um and then doing uh oh hello itself one uh working with nick every night who's like was just so in character and so like like you could just tell like he felt like the weight of his body and his feet you know like he really was there in the character and 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 could go off you know uh much faster than i can like i think there was a a time where I, I was, I like to be meticulous and Nick could be freer. And I learned a lot about being freer from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he can be meticulous too. It's just sometimes the dynamic was. Uh, in what way did your frustrations working on Mulaney and it, and it eventually not working out and then you being able to make it through that sort of free you up? Did, did sort of the realizing like you can be flawed on stage in a certain way 
and people still like you help? Um, I guess, I guess in the question where it feels like you, you were much more concerned about being liked earlier in your career. Sure. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, yes. And in, and in life yes. in general. Yeah. So I guess it's the process of both your comedy moving that way and you just as a person be like, I'm now more comfortable if people don't. Oh, all- okay. I get, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, like reading John Mulaney sucks en- enough makes you go like, okay, all right, that's what that's like. Uh, so, um, it, but it was, I don't want to, I don't mean it's like, you know, uh, I'll show you. No, no, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> no, uh, it, it was, uh, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's great benefits to failure in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of, a sort of like who cares that just gives you this existential who cares yeah um that i think is great for comedy i i asked partly because you know at the core of 100 million dollars is a joke about something you're angry about even slightly but it's like there is an anger of like this is how they're spending their money somewhere in there is like it's not a joke about they could be using this for charity but there is a certain sort of like this is bothering me to it oh but what was bothering me was um why don't we give it up enough for someone just getting the money together? Sure. Um, it, it's it's just so funny. I, I it did come from a place of like, wow, these everyone works so hard. And this was before I had a sitcom. It's funny that I you were angry about something different than I thought, but you feel like they work so hard on this. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, it should be like, uh, yeah, they did this whole thing. Uh, I didn't love it. Uh, I. Uh, uh, it was a little boring, but man, they had costumes. <laughs> they never say that in reviews. Like, boy, they really, they really, they were all there. It's not, it's 90 minutes. It's 128 minutes. They did it the whole time. <laughs> they put it together. That's never noted. It's a piece it's, of, I, it's assumed <laughs> that all that work goes into it. If you were to do that joke, let's say, you know, you didn't have the kernel of the joke of you would pay just to see $100 million until now. How do you think the joke would have been different if you were doing it now or on your most recent tour? Um, Maybe I would have said what I just said, you know, like, can we please just, you know, stop? Uh, uh, n- n- not that I, not that I have, a, not that I care when a blockbuster gets bad reviews. I wasn't like distraught yeah. about John Carter from Mars. Is that what that's called? Yeah. John Carter. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. But I, I think the sort of like, you know, they had to get up at like five and they were, and I know well, it's not the, I, I know there's real brave people in the world. I'm not an idiot, but they had to get up at five and they were in like prosthetics for four hours and then they did the whole thing. And, uh, th- there's never, a there's never a, um, I, I don't know what it would be, not a review, but just a, a citation, a certificate yeah. published next to the movie review saying, we should note that you completed a full movie that's set in outer space and you came up with fake names for everyone and all the actors remembered their fake names and they pretended to be the people the whole time. And that, and it cost a lot of money and you had to beg for money mm-hmm. and you got a lot from a big studio and the studio, uh, and you knew the studio would kill you if it didn't do well and you went out and you did it anyway and you got some money from like weird Saudis that no one talks about in Hollywood. And uh, <laughs> then... Um, you you did it. You like you 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 just you begged, borrowed, and stole, and then you got up at five and put on prosthetics and uh, a commendation mm-hmm. on the completion. And now then you can write a review saying I don't like it. Yeah, 
it's a it, it you probably could then be like people should have said like isn't it impressive that i put my name on the sitcom knowing that people might make fun of it it's a similar i can't say that <laughs> <laughs> no no you could you could say this joke and people are like oh it's kind of like his sitcom thing um i understand exactly how what i just said could be drawn as a comparison to <laughs> but you didn't even worked on it. something that wasn't loved but um uh but the other side of it is having done it it's like i got all the benefit of working with those people and doing yeah. it um so it 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 can't within it's like a fun experience that's why a lot of people you ask them if you ask someone like what was your favorite thing you did they often name something that was not their most yeah. famous work when i look back at the the 100 million dollars joke there's a part that I, I sort of just noticed when i was thinking about your whole career which is you say i'm at a point in my life where i would wait in line just to look at that much cash which is partly a very young person's idea of like i just would be amazed to see money it captures where you are that age, and I feel like a lot of your comedy wrestles with age in an interesting way because you are, uh, you know, a guy who talks like an old man. You know, what is your relationship with your age? How has it evolved? Um, I didn't think I was young when I started. I was uh, 21, and I was, you know, I, I, I've always thought I was just, since I was a kid, like just a full-grown citizen. Uh, it, it, it was interesting doing like comedy clubs uh going on the road when i was 22 23 uh i looked young and it i i realized and it might have been even berbiglia's advice of like oh you have to address it <laughs> like you know like that's that's why people start with like you well, mm-hmm. you guys are thinking harry potter just walked out whatever it is yeah. like, like everyone makes fun of those jokes but like you you kind of need to say to the audience, like, hey, look at me. What, what, did kindergarten get out? Okay, now here's my opinions on OJ. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I was young then, uh, and uh, I'm less young now. And uh, back then, you know, people go, oh, what, you, you uh, uh, play comedy clubs? How old are you? I go, 25. They go, wow, 25. Uh, now I'm 35. And they go, how old are you? I go, 35. They go, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> You look 35. That checks out. Um, is there, do you think there's maybe some uh, conscious or unconscious meaning to your last specials having kid in the title? Um, like, this sounds so stupid, but no, uh, I, that they both had kid in the title, I did not <laughs> notice until I, I did not consciously uh, do. Because uh, Comeback Kid was this, you know, expression for Bill Clinton. And then with this, uh, it's a deep cut Simpsons reference, which I don't know if you knew. Mo was a boxer and he goes through all his boxing names mm-hmm. and one of them was Kid Gorgeous. Um, I had a list of titles, um, all kind of similar in that vein, like sounding like either like an old fashioned boxer or like a gentleman bandit or something. Um, and I had just a list of them. Uh, there's a Steely Dan song called Midnight Cruiser. And there's a line in it, um, I am another gentleman loser. And I thought about calling the tour gentleman loser. And I thought that would be really funny. And uh, then I was like, oh, then people would be like, so t- what's it? Tell me, give me five things that, that a loser does or whatever. Okay. And be like, you know, tell me about like, like, you know, uh, they put some stamp on it that I, I didn't intend. Right. Um, but it's still a good title. Maybe I'll give it to something. Well, I, and it, I'd it, have to pay Steely Dan if they're well, lyric. It is. It would be a nicer, like, oh, he was noon down, then he was this comeback kid, and then now right. he's now he's a gentleman. 
Uh, no, he- it it was funnier. So I so then I had a list of titles, and I was at dinner with my wife, and I read her all of them, and she laughed the hardest at "Kid Gorgeous," and she's like, "The idea of you at thirty five still calling like we both found it funny to still refer to yourself as the kid." I really like when old old pe- older people re- still refer to themselves as the kid, and uh, and also co- like referring to yourself as gorgeous. All of it, all of it was like perfect. Like, yeah, uh, it, is, this is the oldest I've ever been. Uh, my back's all messed up. Uh, I'm like exhausted all the time, and to call it like kid gorgeous to me was that was just a that was just something. For me, I believe at least in your presents, and I, I imagine top art was the last thing you recorded with your stand up where you didn't wear a suit. Did you wear a suit for the top part? Nope. Great. So this question still holds up. What was the transition? Why does it make sense of who you were as a comedian? You know, what do you think that shift communicated to an audience? I was doing a club called the Laughing Skull in Atlanta. It's a great club down there, and I was headlining a week there, and I wore like a flannel like um, checkered shirt and jeans every night. And the whole audience was guys that looked like me wearing flannel checkered shirts and jeans. And it just seemed like, I remember thinking like, it looks like just one of us decided to get up here. Mm -hmm. And I thought there was, I don't know how conscious it was, but I was like, well, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. But one way to look in charge would be to show up in a suit. Oh, and also, you know what? I just remember this. Jason Woliner, uh, the great director did uh, Human Giant and many other funny things. He, uh, when we were really young, he would direct in a suit. And I, mm-hmm. I said, oh, is that like a bit? And he said, no, people will listen to me if I'm in a suit. And I think it kind of worked. Yeah. I think I, I've heard you talk about, you realize you should be a professional. Like, was there a amount of like, I'm a professional on stage, this will communicate that people are paying to see. Uh, yeah, I'm in charge. Yeah. Yeah. Which like, I think <clears throat> all comedians and um, rock or Seinfeld or both, uh, I'm sorry to misattribute it, but you know, they say like, you're the pilot and you don't, you don't want to say, I, I think I can land the plane. You want to say like, I'm definitely going to land the plane. <laughs> um, when I talked to Roy Wood Jr., he was talking about how there, there are certain subjects he didn't feel comfortable, comfortable talking about until he was old enough and sort of big enough where the audience would treat him with the, treat him with enough being like, authority that you're allowed to talk about certain subjects are there things that now that you acknowledge that you are an old person that you feel like now you're able to talk about that you weren't really able to before um i don't know if there are topics that i think i can now talk about that i couldn't before uh i'm more comfortable um maybe uh being grumpy yeah (laughs) or complaining you know um it, it would yeah like yeah eventually like you you realize like the if you're if you're faking something on stage it's just gonna come through as false you know if i'm actually like just like god my back is sweating so much i'm so sick of this and you just you voice that to the audience it it something about it clicks yeah and also i think they they know you're now you're more and more as you get playing more audience that are paying to see John Mulaney, they want to know what John Mulaney's like and how he's feeling more than like, here's the joke teller man. He's a specific person. So your specific experience is they care about more that I think it makes sense that you'd... Oh, if they buy a ticket? Yeah. Um, Yeah, you get the the recognition thing is wonderful because then they're there to see you. Yeah. But you you can't give that more than a half second thought. You mentioned the grumpiness, which is 
this is, I don't even know what the question is, but it, it is interesting because it feels like you're already in your old Seinfeld stage. I don't know if you've seen Seinfeld in the last five years. It feels like you are already at uh, the ripe old age of 35 in your, like, uh, I'm now not a little over it, but like you're, you're willing to reveal that, that, that grumpiness that took him a little bit longer to get to. Oh, you mentioned before about um, uh, being comfortable with being mean. And yeah. Like when people talk about what jokes are dark and what subjects are dark and they, you know, like obviously like uh, if you do, you know, uh, abortion jokes, you, uh, you're like edgy and dark. The, Seinfeld has jokes that are as dark as you can possibly get to me, in, in a sense, to me. Mm-hmm. Like he has that joke about um, uh, cleaning up after yourself in the movie theater and how, like, he's like, I've paid $12 to see the movie. I paid $4 for the drink. I paid $8 for the popcorn. When I'm done with it, I open my hand. And, like, that is, like, to me, like a very dark, primal human mm-hmm. thought. It is not like shocking, uh, head, you know, like a, a headline grabber. But like, I remember hearing that joke and being like, that is as in touch with our, all of our dark side as any, you know, hot button issue joke could be. So you just finished touring Kid Gorgeous, I believe, last night from this recording. So, you know, for the most part, slate's clean. You know, when will you do stand up again? How will you write it? What will you talk about? I'll do stand up really soon. Um, Maybe this week. Uh, I haven't booked any spots yet. Uh, I filmed that special at Radio City. It comes out May 1st, which as of this recording is tomorrow. And then that's all burnt. (laughs) And it's gone. And I don't get to do it anymore. And uh, I have uh, been on the road for a year and worked out stuff that while it didn't make the special, I'm still working on it. So luckily there's some stuff in the hopper. Uh, and then some smoke and mirrors, or maybe I'll take questions. <laughs> You're not going to go up be like, so what's in... No, I, I mean, as much as I said, like, oh, I've gotten more comfortable writing on stage, and, like, I'm still terrified, and I, I would not, I would never go up, I would never go up empty. Is there something that you're talking about now that you feel is a different area than you have that, that people have seen? Well, other than the people who've just seen you on tour? Um, is there a different area? I don't know. I don't really like to overanalyze it. I will say, like, uh, looking back at a lot of the stuff, like playing that thing from the top part, it's like, yeah, it's all the same person with like who's we- weirdly angry about certain things. Uh, it just maybe comes out more and more, or uh, shows itself in like laughing at how absurd things are, or just still being like white hot mad about it. <laughs> So that sound means it's time for our, our final segment. It's called the the laughing round. So it's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Okay. All right. So if you, if you can steal a another comedian's joke in a sort of metaphysical way, and where it was always yours, you completely removed it from the original comic's career, and you can use it freely with a clear conscience. What joke would it would you want? I would. I have an answer for this. Okay. Great. I would hook, line, and sinker steal this bit from a comedian named Joe Zimmerman about Andrew Jackson, where he just takes you through true facts of Andrew Jackson's life and then has the best jokes about them. I've listened to it on YouTube like a hundred times. I have fantasies sometimes about doing it. Like I'll be on the treadmill and I'll be thinking about it being my joke. And it is like, I I want, I I, I wish it was mine so bad. (laughs) Why do you think that is? 
I, I just love it. It's like, it's also, I was like, oh, that's so funny to take you through, like, like to take an audience through real facts about Andrew Jackson, who's on no one's mind. Yeah. And then Joe Zimmerman brings him up and he tells you real things he did and has jokes off of them that are great. And yeah. it's, and it destroys. And <laughs> it's it's, like, I, I'm so like, I'm like, oh, that, yeah, that is what. It's like doing political comedy that's timeless because it's not like anyone is well, well, like, well, like you were saying, I, I, it, you know, I had an OJ joke 25 years after the fact. Like, imagine if no one knew about OJ. Yeah. Like, uh, him taking you through the events of it. I don't want to spoil the joke. People <laughs> should just look it up. Um, that is like, that is my absolute <laughs> grand envy. Grand envy. I want that joke so bad. Um, are you going to see Ocean's 8? Yes. I will see Ocean's 8. Are you asking because of Maybe. New, in, new in Town? In my special New in Town, I had a joke. Uh, I was new to dating my now wife, and I, it was a joke about how it's sometimes hard to get groups of women who don't know each other to hang out. And in the joke, I said, you uh, like they could never do an Ocean's Eleven of all women because two would keep breaking off to talk shit about the other mm-hmm. nine. <laughs> and uh, people have said to me, uh, look, they're proving you wrong. And I'm like, what do you do? No, no, no. That it, it was uh, in my experience uh, with uh, my girlfriend. It was something I noticed and uh, was uh, a joke I said on stage. It wasn't like uh, again, like a speech saying that there can't be an Ocean's Eleven with women. Of course, there can be. It's going to be a great movie. You were aware that it was wrong at the time. You're on like this is my time to make this big point. No, I'm. None of them are points. <laughs> Um, it, it, it's, a, it's, uh, it's, it was an observation, um, about my girlfriend and meshing friend groups. And, uh, of course you can make an Ocean's Eleven with women and they have, and it's going to be great. Um, all right. So this next segment, it's a, it's a game I call, uh, just the punchlines. Uh, so I will provide you a list of things you said on stage that I find very funny. And I want to see if you could remember how you said it at the time that you said it. Ooh. Wow, this would have been so good two years ago. Uh, I can't wait. Okay, all right. My so, brain. Oh, I have such a new brain. It's going to be great. So, I, I do. I read the punchline. You just read it in the way you said it. Oh, just the words. Just the words. Okay. Fine golden hair. <laughs> I'm not going to rape you. I'm a little boy. Blue shirt lady, nice lady. What's that? You want a clue? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. When they give the guy the photo. Oh, yeah. Blue shirt lady. Nice lady. Came in here Tuesday, right? Okay, yeah. Um, They've never spoken. It's they've never. Oh, because it's the horse. Yeah. Why do people shush animals? (laughs) They've never spoken. I think that's the delivery. They've never spoken. No. Yeah, you do it. You do a real John Mulaney on it. They've never spoken. I no. think that's how I said it every night. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, you have the files. They've never spoken. My stomach hurts. I think yep. that's pretty close. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> oh, this one's hard. You know, like a liar. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. I'm gonna push him. <laughs> hmm. Big ass B. <laughs> From the comeback kid. 
about yeah. oh 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 yeah 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 uh uh right uh, it's better to say my wife right you know when you're like can my girlfriend come and i don't know why i say it like that <laughs> um ha 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 take your milk <laughs> yep. i remember that one mm-hmm. eat ass suck a dick and sell drugs uh my mom said that's she was like you the joke is so filthy <laughs> you know like uh like why why did you change um the I'm new in town joke to be that. And I was like, I, I didn't. She was like, it's that joke though. And I was, I was like, no, it was a different time that this happened. She was like, no, don't say it. That didn't happen. I was like, yes, it happened. <laughs> I didn't sit down and think like, what would be a good story? Uh, where are we? Oh, bring me my dish. That's Petunia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, this is still Petunia. Mmm, good dinner. Is that right, Jesse? Yep. Okay. Not funny. That's uh, that's new. Mm-hmm. That's Mick Jagger. Oh, this is this is a uh, baby. This is okay. Uh, this is uh, if you were sold fake cocaine, it turned out to be baby aspirin. You'd be bad. Um, but then at least you have baby aspirin, and maybe you have a baby. <laughs> this is my favorite part of the show. Oh, this is my favorite part of the whole special. And the baby goes, oh, my head. It, like, doesn't do, it, like, you know, like, I was like, I look forward to that every night. I had the idea to do this game because of that moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my head. When it doesn't work, it makes me laugh so hard. Uh, I, I, I very much enjoy that. I'm a big fan of myself. <laughs> That's up to ye. That's uh, uh, the, the capture joke. Mm-hmm. Um, Weekends, that's Nunzio's time. That's a guy talking to a class about mm-hmm. smoking crack cocaine. Um, ground rule. Uh, oh, boy. How does George talk? Well, how did I do this? Ground rules. First off, cell phones, turn them on. Take calls. And one last one. Well, I say this so many different times. Cocaine. Do, do. Cocaine. Cocaine. Smoked cocaine. <laughs> cocaine. Do you want cocaine? Oh, no, I feel like- I'm sorry. That's what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wanted. Cocaine. There you go. Oh, we were snorting cocaine. <laughs> I talk about cocaine so much that I uh, have various uh, deliveries of it. If you were to host SNL again, or when you are to host SNL again, do you have any other sort of sketches that never made a past table that you would want to do? You don't have to give too much away, but you can kind of give us the general sense. Um, yeah, there are some things. Uh, so Simon Rich and Merica Sawyer and I used to write about three pieces a week, every week for about three years. And we had a lot of, we had a lot of miss it. We had a lot of not make mm-hmm. Um, and when I hosted, we did the sketch switcheroo, which, uh, had not made it past the table before. Um, and, uh, we didn't like set out like, okay, he said I can host. We got to do switcheroo. <laughs> that was the one we we all. That was kind of one of our babies we loved the most. And then we said, "Hey, we'll we'll call it sitcom reboot because there are all these sitcom reboots now." So that's yeah. what the sketch at the, the table is called sitcom reboot. In the beginning, Cecily talks about all these reboots, so it seems topical, but it's yeah. not. It's switcheroo. <laughs> After that paragraph, we're back to switcheroo. So, it, do you have anything else? Do you feel like if you're hosting? Uh, yeah, there are a couple of things we talked about. Um, 
I'm, uh, yeah, I guess I can't really, I'm trying to think, uh, um, one about the rock and roll hall of fame Mm -hmm. and an asteroid. (laughs) Uh, yeah, boy, can't, uh, it's hard to describe a premise without, without Just tipping give, give it. Yeah. Is there a joke that either at an award show or something else, uh, got cut that doesn't exist anywhere else, that this is a place here and now you can tell it, though it exists somewhere? Oh. While topicality still kind of can exist. Boy, I'm sure. <laughs> it's interesting, like I don't, I don't cling to things as much as I used to. Like things that didn't make it would be like grand injustices, you know, and so I I let things go a little more because it's like, it yeah it didn't make the team, so it didn't make the team. I had a joke back when Oprah, um, was sued by the cattle mm-hmm. rancher association of Texas, and uh, I said that's how powerful Oprah is. Oprah got sued by meat and won. <laughs> That's a very, very dated joke that is useless. Now it's here. It has a use. Now Um, it's here. uh, A similar but slightly different question. Is there a joke or sketch that you find absolutely hilarious that never, ever works to a point uh, you can never really do in your act anymore, but you'll go to your grave thinking it's funny regardless? Yeah, constant, uh, constant problem. I'm always in the shower. I'm not always in the shower. When (laughs) I'm in the shower, I think of a thing and I'm like, I'm I'm like, oh, this is going to kill. If ever I think of a joke and as I think of it, I picture the audience laughing really hard, which is uh, disgusting and vain and egotistical. But like it happens. If ever I picture them laughing super hard, uh, it will invariably bomb every time. I had a joke that uh, that um, uh, my parents played Salieri when I, for me when I was in the womb. It never got anything. <laughs> And I was like, I was like, and I, sometimes I'd be like, uh, everyone, let's come on, give me, yeah. give me that it is a well constructed joke. Maybe someone else, maybe it's a joke for someone else. Yeah, but uh, give me that. I feel like you could probably get a, like a celebrity New Yorker cartoon caption out of that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I gave you an idea. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, like be, uh, yeah, I can picture it now. That cartoon. It's like a pig talking to a therapist, but yeah. Oh, I hosted a thing called the uh, uh, the Drama Guild Fund benefit uh, this year, honoring uh, Hal Prince, and I got to meet Stephen Sondheim, which was like huge for me because uh, I'm a huge fan of his and Hal Prince, and uh, my wife and I got to sit at the same table with them and Carol Burnett, and it was crazy. And I was emceeing it, and I had a joke I didn't do at the last second, which is Stephen Sondheim. This guy's so good at songs; they should call him Stephen Song Guy. And. Uh, I don't know why did I, I pulled back on that. I was like, you, I, I think I was like, what do you think? You have goodwill? They don't know who you are. So good at songs. <laughs> good One is produced by Nick Rad. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them, what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new comedian and a new joke. Have a good one.
That was a HeadGum Podcast.